Father, I, I know there are some here who do not know that it is well with their soul. Show them Christ this morning, please. Let them see, Lord, that there is a way out of this darkness. That there is hope. Hope now and hope for all eternity to be with you. Reveal to us, Lord, your majesty this morning that we might have a right fear of you, the holy God. Show us, Lord, the depth of our sin and the darkness of which we were born and in which we live. And then reveal to us the brilliant light of Christ that we might be set free from that this morning, saved or unsaved. We praise you for being a God who saves sinners like us. I thank you that you saved Ron. I pray you do that great work amongst us as well. In Christ's name, amen. If you have a Bible, open up, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Second Samuel chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 23. We finished 22 last week. We spent three weeks looking at, um, it's a psalm. It's the same as Psalm 18 in chapter 22. We had a chance to look at, hear David speak about the Messiah. He spoke about Christ. He spoke about the suffering of Christ. He spoke about the deliverance of Christ from the tomb. And then he spoke about the glorious exaltation of Christ to the throne. And we spent three weeks on it because it was worthy of three weeks, probably worthy of three years, looking at the suffering, deliverance, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 23. And in the first seven verses of chapter 23, we, we have David's final words. And, and we're going to pause on these seven verses today as well. We have, in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, for those of you who know your Bible, we also have David's final words, but they were said to Solomon specifically. And they were in the context of things that were um, relating to relationships and what he wanted Solomon to do. Here in 2 Samuel 23, we have David's final words to the nation, spoken to him directly by God what this king would say to his people one last time. Now, we've had weeks now to look at the life of David. We've seen him as, as a man after God's own heart who rebelled in horrible ways. And so it would do us good to pause and say, what does David have to say before he says nothing more on this side? This prophet and this king is worthy of our attention this morning. And I found it particularly amazing this week, of all that David could talk about, he has this laser focus on Christ and the kingdom of Christ. And that's what he leaves the people with. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so by God's grace this morning, we will look at three things. One, the sure kingdom, the certainty of this kingdom. Number two, the brilliant king. And number three, the narrow path to get there the sureness of this kingdom, the brilliance of its king, and the narrow path to get there. Let's look at the first point, the sure kingdom. Many of you have heard that old adage that there's nothing certain in life but what? Death and taxes. You all have an A in civics for the morning. Do you know who said that? Benjamin Franklin. Now, if that statement is true, we know it's not because the scriptures do not teach that. But if that statement were true, what a horrible thing to be certain about. Only death and taxes. It would lead to depression. And if you were like Abraham, if you were like Benjamin Franklin, inebriation. And that would be the only hope you would have if you said, what is certain in my life is death and taxes. By God's grace, David offers us here words of great encouragement. There is something infinitely better than death 
and taxes. Look with me, beginning at verse 1 in 2 Samuel 23. David writes, Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wants us to know this is him speaking. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, jump down to verse 5, please. Does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to, to prosper all my help and my desire? David, speaking to us as a dying king, takes this divine revelation from God and makes a bold statement to us. There are some commentators who believe, and and I don't want to push this because it's difficult in the Hebrew, that the holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were speaking to David. Look at verse 2 again. The Holy Spirit, His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel, the Father, has spoken to me. The rock of Israel, we know the rock is Christ, has said to me, Now, if we have the holy triune God speaking to David these final words, we want to know what he said. I mean, I want to know what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said to David one last time that he might speak to God's people one last time. What was it that he said? I mean, what was it that was so important? David comes, and the first thing that he says is this, there is a kingdom to come, and it is secure, and it is guaranteed it's, a, it's something we can place our hope in for this reign of the Messiah, this reign of the king, the ultimate king, the greater David. It will come to pass. Look at verse 5 again. David says, For does not my house stand so with God? The answer is yes. The house of David was established by God and for God for all eternity. Look at the latter part of verse 5. David asks another rhetorical question, giving us the answer. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? I'll give you a better translation in the Hebrew. Won't he cause to spring up my salvation, my desires, which are God's desires? The answer again is yes. We know that the Davidic rule, it did not end in 586 with the Babylonian captivity. It did not end with the coming of the Persians or the Greeks or the Roman occupation. It did not end in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the city destroyed and the people scattered. The dynasty of David, as promised by God, would not only continue, but we know from the New Testament that it would be consummated in the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't to be just an earthly kingdom. It was a cosmic kingdom that would include earth as well. So what was David saying here? He will come. The kingdom will come. The king will reign. This is guaranteed. How do we know this? Look at verse 5 again. For he, God, has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Ordered in all things and secure. David saying, God made with me a covenant that has order to it, and this timeline will play itself out exactly as God sees fit, and it is secure. And the word for secure in the Hebrew in that is shamar, and it means to keep or to preserve. It will last this covenant that was made. An everlasting covenant is an unbreakable agreement. An 
an unbreakable agreement that has no expiration date. What did he say to David back in chapter 7? You should remember this. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and following. God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And then he says in verse 13, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And of course we know that he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's not talking about Solomon. He's talking about Christ. And God is promising here that from David's bloodline, the father would send the son and establish his kingdom that would reign forever and ever. Now, David did not know how and David did not know when, but we do. When? 2,000 years ago, when Christ came the first time. How? Through the cross. Through the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. God the Father brought this kingdom to bear upon all mankind. God placed one of David's descendants, Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse, on the throne. And that's where he sits now. And I'm not talking a geographic throne. I'm not talking about Israel proper. I'm talking about over all creation. And we saw that last week. This king now reigns over all that is seen and unseen. And it would be and is a far greater kingdom and far more powerful than David could have ever imagined. Now, if you know Christ, I would argue, dear friends, that this is infinitely better than death and taxes. This glorious news, when anyone looks out on the landscape of humanity, I I do believe that you have to You have to not be thinking if you make a statement that I see things getting better and better. I don't know how we can claim that when we see what's transpiring in our own country and around the world. By God's grace, as the world continues to rebel against him and become more unstable, that illusion will fade and people will see that there is no certainty in anyone or anything other than Christ. And that's a glorious blessing. We want that. We want, if someone has certainty in their marriage, we want them to know that that marriage will not last forever. The spouse may die. The spouse may divorce them. If someone puts their hope in their children, we want them to know that's not where you can put your hope that will last or your job because jobs, we lose our jobs or our finances because money is fleeting. We want this illusion to die and to die quickly. We don't want anyone anywhere putting their security and their hope in anyone or anything other than Christ. You say, well, why is that? Because David makes it clear, Christ and his kingdom, that's certain. You can drive a nail into that. You can stake a claim on him. He will come. He will reign. Any other hope in any other thing other than Christ is utterly hopeless. What can we be certain of? We can be certain of God's promise to this covenant that Christ is reigning, that he will come again. And then when he does, he will gather all mankind to himself. And as we saw last week, in so doing, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that. We know that God is faithful and that through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that this too will come to pass God has never broken a single promise and he's not going to break the most important covenant he ever made with man. He will fulfill it. His name is faithful. That means, my beloved, 
when your life at times seems riddled with uncertainty, when old friends that for years seemed like stable influences in your life turn against you, when the security that you have in your workplace ends because the job goes away, maybe you're like me, you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a sense of terror and you begin to realize that you don't have much control over anything. That you begin to realize that you're not God and you're not Lord. Your circumstances, your relationships, your occupation, your ministry, all these things, God is in control. So when that comes upon you, David wants you to turn to Christ. He wants you to turn to the one and to the kingdom that is certain. He wants you to turn to the rock of your salvation. And he wants you to know that whatever else you put your hope or your trust in, it will fail you. Even if you make it to the very end and you think, it did not fail me. When you leave this place and come into the presence of God, you will know it failed you. It's an illusion. Upon Christ alone must we base our life and our eternity. On him alone. You have no security if you do not have Christ as your king. You have no protection. You have no one to keep you safe now. You have no one to deliver you from hell in the future. You have no one to be your advocate when you stand before the holy God. David, in his parting words to the nation, he wants the people, he wants the church to put all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our certainty in this one king and this kingdom to come. He wants you to take your eyes off all those idols that we continue to bow down to and instead turn our eyes to the hope of the one who reigns upon the throne. And from this message, this message came from the Spirit of the Lord, from the God of Israel, from the rock of our salvation, from an everlasting covenant. David can't make it more secure. He's saying this will come to pass. Now if you're a skeptic, you say, all right, so this king's going to come and the kingdom will reign, but how do I know that this king's not going to be like every other king throughout human history? How do I know it's not going to be like every other kingdom that's corrupt? Because we have enough history to, to reveal to us we've never seen a real king like this. And we've never seen a kingdom that's described in scriptures like this. So how do we know? How, would you, how do we know this Jesus is going to be different? I want to take you to the second point, the brilliance of this king. Look at verse 3 again. David makes this claim of certainty on this kingdom, and then he begins to describe in poetic language this king that will come and reign. Look at the middle part of verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God... He draws on them like he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The future kingdom that David is talking about should be radically appealing to all mankind when we hear just this brief description. Now, in, in some capacity, David is talking about his own kingdom, but certainly not perfectly. David was not a perfectly just king and we know that he did not have an absolute fear of the Lord but the one to whom he speaks the Holy One, Jesus Christ is the perfectly just king who has a perfect fear of God 
he will be the righteous ruler who does everything and all things out of his desire to please the Father most. His goodness, his justice, his love as a king will be in direct response to God the Father. And the impact of this just God-fearing king on his people, it will be life-transforming. It will be a permanent transformation upon the people of whom he comes when he brings this light of life. And there are two images that we have here to encourage us, I think, deeply to this end. Not only in the assuredness of this kingdom will come, but when it comes and the king reigns, will be changed. How so? Look back at verse 4 again. We have this image of a glorious sunrise. It says, He, the king, dawns on them, his people, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, a brilliant sunrise. Years ago, my father and my oldest son, we made a road trip out to Illinois and back. And we drove all night. And as we were making our way into Nebraska, the sun started to rise. And I I think my father and my son were asleep. And it was one of those glorious sunrises. And it was. There was beauty all around. It was a breathtaking moment for me. But I I was also so glad that it was now daylight. Because we're, we're traveling in this little white Honda minivan at night on I-80. And it was all trucks just blowing by me. And so there was a sense of security and safety now that I had light instead of darkness. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what David's doing here is he's pointing to the light. He's saying there's a king who will come who will bring light into this present darkness. And what does this coming of this light, this morning light, this dawning on man mean for us? And why is it necessary? It means certainly that this world is steeped in darkness. In fact, we can say that if if you're not following Christ right now, then you're in darkness If you do not know the light of the world, Jesus Christ, then your life is contrary to God. Darkness is contrary to the light. It's contrary to his kingdom. It's contrary to his moral truths. It's contrary to his love. It is the antithesis of all that is good and lovely and pure. And if you do not know Christ, then you're in the dark. This darkness resides in the world. Most pointedly, it resides in the heart of every mankind. Now, Jesus is drawing. He's dawning on his people like the morning light after a long, dark night. And it's such glorious news because we're born into darkness. We enter the darkness as sinners. We perpetuate that darkness as sinners. And then we get here this hope that Jesus Christ can come and bring light into our darkness. There is no other source of light. There is no other means of escaping the darkness. There is no other hope of salvation. The light of Christ, it reveals the ugliness of sin. It reveals the depth of the darkness in our own hearts. And then simultaneously, it shows us the cross. It reveals the glorious hope that we have in overcoming this darkness, in not being subject to it all of our lives, and then for all eternity. 
It makes plain the beautiful hope of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ setting us free from the slavery of the darkness that we know. Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that means following him, my beloved, you will have the purity that comes from the cleansing of Christ. You will have the glorious relationship of now knowing God as your heavenly father. You will have, as Christ says, all the blessings of heaven poured out upon you And it will enable you now to make your way through this darkness. It'll it'll enable you to put the dark things in perspective. And we so desperately need that. That means when, when relationships are broken, when loved ones die, we have a means of making sense of it all. When your hopes and your dreams are shattered, the light who is Christ will help us bear these sorrows and reveal to us that loving face of God that's behind every one to see that this doesn't happen by chance, that God is providential and he's sovereign over all things. In order for this light to shine upon men, Jesus had to come into the darkness. Right, in order for the sun to cast out the night, it has to rise. There has to be a dawn. There has to be a new day in order for Jesus Christ to come into this present darkness and dispel it, he had to come, and he did that. He came as a man. He came in the flesh to set us free from our decaying bodies and from our anxious minds and from our deceptive hearts. He came to bring us hope by going to the cross and dying for our sins. He came as the light of the world the first time to redeem man, to save us, from the darkness of hell. And when the light comes again, he will come in all the glory of the Father and he will be seated upon his throne. And when that happens, darkness will be cast out forever. We know this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. We're told that the new Jerusalem where Christ will reign, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its light. How wonderfully appealing this light ought to be to us. When we contemplate what David said, this kingdom coming, think about this king. Know who this king is. He is light. And that means if you know him, he will cast out all the darkness in your life, all the darkness in your heart, and you know how much is still there. Even in Christ, you know how much is still there. He will purify you and make you holy as he is holy. But not only that, I want you to see something else here in verse 4. He's going to produce for himself a fruit, a people that brings the Father glory. Smaller lights. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 4. It says, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's the coming of this king. He will be like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. Now, we don't have to be farmers to know you need rain to grow crops. And we're experiencing that right now. Lack of rain means things die. And so David is speaking by the inspired word of God to reveal this new king, this Messiah, as one who brings rain to make the grass, the grass sprout up. Jesus himself said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Our Lord identifies him as the very source by which there is real growth. 
not just salvation, but sanctification. You coming into the light and becoming a holy people. God's great work, as promised to David, would not only be the Savior purifying, making, saving people from hell, but making us a holy people as well. Christ came to do this great work for us. Isaiah revealed Christ in this way. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit, that's you, the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the, survi- of the survivors of Israel. In other words, this kingdom that's going to come is unlike any other kingdom we've ever seen, and this king who will reign will be like, like unlike any other king that this world's ever known. This king will deliver us from the darkness, from your enemies, from your sin, from your struggles, from your late night anxieties. He will deliver you from all that. And then he will make you by his power, by the Holy Spirit, he will make you into a glorious people, a holy people, a royal priesthood, as Peter puts it. I love that. Do you see yourself as a royal priest? He's going to make us and is making us into brilliant lights that we're supposed to shine in this present darkness as well. Yeah. These are David's last words. A public address. What is he doing? He wants to draw their hearts and their minds heavenward. This is the last thing he's going to say. He wants to redirect all of God's people to God. He says, look at the kingdom to come. Look at the king of that kingdom. That kingdom that's coming is certain, and that king is brilliant. And he will bring a light that will cast out the darkness. He'll bring a purity and a holiness that will make you, a wretched people, holy too, so that we can dwell in the presence of the Father forever and not be cast out with the darkness as well. No doubt that David had Hebrews 11.1 in mind. He wanted them to be sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they could not see. Maybe 1 Peter 1.13, he wanted them to fix their hope on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wanted to remind them that they are God's people, that we are God's people, and therefore we're supposed to live like it. We're supposed to bear much fruit. That love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, that's supposed to come from you. It's an ooze from you. And from this place, there's an expectation by this king that if he is the vine and you are the branch, that you will bear much fruit being connected to the vine. If he is the light that brings in the, that casts out the darkness, that we are to be that light as well. He expects that, and we should expect that of ourselves. Why this emphasis? Why would David, why would these be his last words? He said, Well, God told him to say it. All right, I'll give you that. It was prophecy. But why these prophetic words? I mean, David had a colorful life. He could have he been talking about the glory days of old. He could have shared with the people the great victories he had. 
He could have done a contemporary American sermon and talk, talked about the top ten ethical ways to be the best Israelite now. Maybe written a book on it. What does he do here, though? David knew his own heart. He knew how easy it was and is for mankind to go astray. He knows that that darkness is there. And so he wants to take our eyes and place them upon God and off the idols. You see, David knew, I mean, he knew the bitter taste of adultery. Not just lust, but real adultery. His hands knew what it felt like to, to be murderous hands, to spill blood. So David did not desire that for his people. He wanted to set before them a kingdom that was coming and a brilliant king that would bring justice and righteousness upon them. And so he ends this final word with a warning. Look at the last point here. And I'm, I was so intrigued that this would be the last thing that David says to his people. Many a pastor should take counsel from these two verses in 6 and 7. Worthless men, verse 6, are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. You see, David knew what we say we know, and that if, if this kingdom is coming, and this king who will reign over it is pure and holy, he is absolute light, then not all will dwell in that kingdom. There will be a separation. David believed this to be true. He knew that if he brought a final sermon that only talked about the truth of grace and mercy and love and God's brilliance in Christ and the nourishment that would come and the fruit would be born, he knew that if he only said that, it wouldn't be the full gospel. He knew that if he only made the listeners smile and have their hearts excited about this kingdom, it would not be sufficient to keep a man from running headlong into sin and damnation. He wanted them to see clearly, and I pray we do today, that this path to the kingdom is a very narrow road. The road is so narrow that Christ himself said it's difficult to stay on. There's so many denominations and so many churches that used to preach a full gospel message. They've either rejected it outright or they've ignored it to the degree of irrelevancy, but the Bible does not. The Bible teaches that there will be a separation, that worthless men will be like thorns that are thrown away, that will be utterly consumed in the fire. Because when the light comes, it will cast out the darkness completely. It'll bring purity and sanctification to the church and to all those who rebel against Christ. It will lead to utter damnation. Our culture teaches absolute tolerance and egalitarianism. It's made its way into the church and has become heretical. 
So many so-called evangelical gospel-centric churches refuse to make this plain distinction between the redeemed of God and the unsaved of God. The entire Bible reveals this single truth. That when the kingdom of Christ comes, there'll be salvation and eternal judgment. There'll be destruction and condemnation. Jesus taught this clearly in his own ministry. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And then he says in verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So David compares these worthless men, better, better translated, wicked or ungodly men, are all those who stay on the broad path. All those who refent, re, refuse to repent and believe and put their faith in this kingdom to come and this king who will reign. They say, no, we will not. David compares them to thorns that are thrown away. So wicked that if handled with bare hands, it would cause injury. These thorns had to be dealt with with appropriate tools, iron, and the shaft of a spear, meaning they're not only wicked, but they're dangerous. They'll choke out the good growth of the fruit of God. I want to pause here for just a moment of clarity and caution. My beloved, when you're dealing with the unsaved and trying to help them overcome a sin in their life, you must be wise in your approach. If you attempt to help them overcome a sin by handling them with human hands, using human wisdom and human techniques, you're going to get injured. If it is a sin issue, then it is a gospel issue, and you must come to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ again and again and again, that they might hear, repent, believe, and have the power for the first time with the Holy Spirit to actually overcome their sin. It means that if you attempt to handle them with the ways of man, you may be subject to the warning that Peter said in 2 Peter 3.17, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. We've seen it happen here at this church. My beloved, if the, if the unsaved will not respond to the gospel of grace, then it will be the, the iron and the scepter of Christ that will bring judgment upon them. Keep that clear as you minister the gospel to the lost. Only the Lord has the tools to render this judgment. Only Jesus has the divine sword of justice. And only he can wield it. It was of Jesus the psalmist talked about in Psalm 2.9 when he says, You will break them with an iron rod and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. They will be consumed by fire. That means that the end for all those who reject the light, who stay in the darkness will be an eternal torment. When the light dawned 2,000 years ago with the coming of Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross as a ransom for many, darkness for the first time was put on notice. The light had come. When this light of the world comes again in glory, that notice will be fulfilled as Jesus fills all of creation with his glorious light. 
That means one of two states for us saints. We're either converted into the light or we are cast out. One of two states. Listen to what the light of the world said he will do with all those who refuse to be saved. This is Christ speaking. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. They will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is the outer darkness. He says again in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, bind them hand and foot and cast them into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says again, three chapters later, Matthew twenty-five thirty, cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness. In that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, apart from Jesus Christ, that's all there will be. The outer darkness, the weeping and the gnashing teeth. It is a phrase that should resonate with you. I remember the first time I read it, before I came to a saving grace, that weeping and gnashing, that gnawing and agony. The imagery is perfect, but it's for all eternity. Why would David have the final words of his final words be this? Why would it be the proclamation of judgment? Why does our Lord talk so much about the wicked being cast out into the utter darkness? He talks about it over and over and over again. Why? Why does the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible make this very clear distinction between the saved and the unsaved. Why? Why are we constantly left with this understanding? Could it be, my beloved, that none of us take it seriously? Not as seriously as we ought. I believe that to be the case in part. We believe God is gracious, but do you believe he's holy also? We believe that God is filled with mercy and love and will pour that out on those in Christ. But do you also believe that he will judge every sin and all those not in Christ? He will cast out in the outer darkness and they will experience the weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Do you believe that with all your might? Because that's true. Do you believe it so much that you'll tell it to others? Do you believe it so much that you'll live this day in light of the promise of Christ, lest you meet the Lord tonight and not know him. David ends with judgment because he wants to show us the king can save us. The the darkness can be overcome by the king. He has that power. He has that desire. Is it not to show all mankind that this covenant of God is not an add-on to your life? It's not like an exercise program or a social club. This covenant made by God divides all of mankind into two groups. Those who will dwell with God forever in everlasting light and those who will be cast out into the outer darkness. I believe it's to magnify the truth of our Lord's words in John chapter 3. Listen closely, saints. This is Jesus speaking. 
He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. I am so thankful this is a time of grace for us. I'm so thankful that door of salvation is still open to us, that we can actually share with people and call them to repent and believe because they can be saved from this. This time is so short. I don't think any of us, in light of the last 24 hours, can deny the fact that death will come quickly for each of us. It's going to come. You know what I hate most as a pastor? I hate corpses. I hate them. I've seen a lot. Prayed over a lot. I hate them. There's no life in them. These people that you love, and there's no life. God did not make you to die like that. He made you to live forever. But if you've seen a corpse and spent time with one, if you don't know Christ, that's the end. It's death forever. It's lifelessness forever. There's darkness in a corpse. That means you can't wait until the light dawns. If you wait till Christ comes, it's too late. It's now that you repent. It's now that you believe. It's now that you trust in Christ. So many refuse to believe, one, that the spiritual darkness is real, or two, they're living in it. Christ made it clear. He said, whoever does not believe in me stands condemned already. My beloved, I I believe that David was writing these final words to the nation, and I believe that he was writing them to himself as well speaking to his failing body and his failing mind, he was reassuring himself of the hope that he has in the Redeemer that lives, in the kingdom to come, in the Christ that will reign. His hope is in the fact that his destination is secure, not because of anything that he has done, because of what Christ did for him. That must be our hope as well. David rejoiced over his salvation and he desired for the people to know that same hope. They were looking forward to the Christ. We look back to what he did at Calvary and then we look forward to his coming again in glory. If you don't know that hope now, then this morning, see God clearly. See the holiness of See the pure light of this king and rightly fear him. See the darkness that is very real in your heart, in this place, and in that eternal realm that we call hell. See that. Ask God to reveal it to you in a way you've never seen before and then ask him to cause you to fall upon your knees and cry out for mercy, to repent of your sins and be saved today. Some of you who profess Christ need to do that. Some of you.
come into the light and the love and the mercy this king offers. Come into it. Stop hiding. Stop playing games. Stop acting as though everything's going to work out in the end. This path is narrow. And it only goes through the cross. I beseech you to run to Christ this day. That you would run to the light of Christ so that he may dawn upon you. That his refreshing rain may come upon you. And that you may be washed of your sins and produce a spiritual harvest of fruit that abounds with each passing day. So that each day that you live, you bring the Father great honor and glory. David's last words were for us. He wants us to live today as though the kingdom's real and it's coming. He wants us to live today in light of the king that has already come and will come again. He wants us to leave this place, my beloved, and go out into the darkness that is real. He wants us to open our mouths and share the gospel so those who are in the darkness can see the light of Christ and also be saved. If you don't have that desire, confess that to God. Ask him to give it to you. And if you do, then by God's grace, open your mouths. Teach this truth. David was not ashamed to have his last words be these words. I pray they are not for you. I pray that you too will be faithful to bring this testimony to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing these words to David so long ago and then preserving them. We might have them this morning to study them and to hear them and to quicken our minds to them, I pray you would. To know that this was not a dream of David's, but these were your words given to him. In light of these truths, Father, I pray that you would bless your church with the security and hope that we have in Christ, in his kingdom coming again, that we would not put our faith and our hope and our trust in anything other than Jesus, that we would confess to you even this morning if we have. I ask also, Lord, that we would be, make ourselves ready for that light when he does come. We would make our lives ready. We'd make our neighbors' lives ready. We praise you for sending Christ the first time and we look forward to you sending him again in, in all of his glory. In light of these truths, Lord, I pray that you would bless this church and your church throughout the world with an urgency, an urgency, Lord, to push back this darkness with your gospel. 
Give us a right passion and a right zeal for the Lord. Awaken us from our slumber here in this place. There's no time to sleep, Lord. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work here that we cannot do. In the flesh, we have no power. But in you, we have great strength. I praise you for those that you brought here this morning. They might hear the gospel. I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters with it. I pray, Lord, there is a soul here in this room that does not know you. They would repent and believe and be saved and come into the light. To your glory and honor, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.